Today we're in our 32nd week um, in the book of Mark. 32 weeks we have been there, and uh, we are in chapter 10. We've bounced around a little bit in chapter 10 um, over the last couple of weeks. But today, if you'll turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, today is simply a, a sermon called On Marriage and Divorce. On Marriage and Divorce. Um, if I were not committed to preaching through the Bible, I can promise you <laughs> that I would not preach the sermon uh, like 10 out of 10, all right? Um, there have been, I'd say in the four years of our existence, there's been about 10 sermons um, where I'm like, ain't no way in the world. And the Lord's like, yes, there is. Get up there Sunday <laughs> and do it. And um, our text is Mark chapter 10. Let's, how about this? Let's read our text today. I'll say some introductory remarks, and then we'll just let our text and the context of our text speak for itself this morning. Mark chapter 10 and verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, use an app on your phone. If not, we have the screens here for you. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again, and he was as he was accustomed. And he taught them again. The Pharisees, a main player and a main character in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why did they ask him that question? The Bible answers, answers that. Look at the next two words, testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Jesus was really good. He would be asked a question. He knew that he was, they were trying to force him into a corner. And Jesus would simply answer that question with a question of his own. And they said, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God, and he begins to quote Genesis in chapter 2, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is quoting scripture. By the way, when we are asked difficult questions, it's a really awesome formula. Ask a question back to clarify and respond with scripture. Those are really good in interacting with people. In verse 10, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then from that point, and we're not going to read here, we go right into Pastor Aaron's uh, sermon two weeks ago on the little children and how he blessed the little children and he encouraged the little children to come uh, to him. By way of introduction this morning, I want to, uh, all of us to understand and recognize and realize and feel the fact that in this room, there are people who have experienced divorce, okay? This is an undeniable fact. So I want you to know that my goal today is twofold. My goal today is to present the truth. I think you can appreciate that. My second goal today is to present it with grace and mercy and love. And I hope, hope that you can appreciate that as well. Um, 
If you're here today, and we're going to address it at the very end, if you're here today and you, there's a divorce that took place in your life years ago, man, may I say that Jesus loves you and his favor is, in, is on you and he counts you as his prized daughter or son. Can I say this morning that some of the strongest marriages that I know either divorced and remarried each other or was a part, were a part of a divorce previously and some of the strongest marriages I know are second marriages. I understand that numbers today uh, tell us that it's very difficult, that obviously over 50% of marriages that begin fail. Um, that is about 14% less in churches, contrary to what a lot of pastors say. Um, I actually did real research on that. Um, it is about 14% better in, in people that claim religious belief. Um, but that doesn't take into effect the many, many people, and we know this in our culture, who just cohabitate. They just live together. Um, and uh, that's a little bit easier if you just live together and then move on whenever you feel like it, right? Um, I understand the numbers today, but it doesn't change this fact in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13. This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why would God not receive my offering? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none, no one, deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The context of Malachi chapter 2 can be found also, if you remember when we were in the book of Nehemiah, we mentioned that Nehemiah was actually chronologically at the end of the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember that. If we look back and we can parallel some of what happened in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, the, uh, the Jewish men were marrying Jewish wives and then they were seeing uh, non-Jewish wives and they were divorcing their Jewish wives to go after Gentile wives. And it wasn't just that they were not Jews, it was the fact that they were pagans. It was the fact that they were unbelievers, they were unsaved. And so these, these men were putting away their wives, and the Bible uses it in that way. I'm sure there were wives that were putting away their husbands too, but the Bible puts it in that way. There were men putting away their wives that were Jewish, and they were putting them away for unbelievers, for Gentiles, for those that were pagan. <clears throat> so this, I'm assuming if you just don't care about uh, proper theology and proper context, you could have some racist that would say that, this, this, uh, that he was, God was against you marrying someone from another country. Uh, if you don't want to do any study and you want to be ignorant, I guess you can take that, uh, take that. That's obviously not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that he hates divorce. Do not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. And as I mentioned, and I want to reiterate this morning, I understand that in 2021, as we sit here today, the reality is that there are people in this room who have experienced this thing that God hates, whether you wanted to or not. It was a reality that happened in your life. And may I say this by God's grace only, that I cannot begin to act like I understand what you specifically went through 
and in many cases may still be going through as a result. My goal today is simply to bring a biblical approach to this topic. Jesus was presented with this question. I hope to give you the truth and finish with words of hope. Is that fair this morning? You didn't think you were coming to church and hearing about this probably. It's okay. Jesus still loves you. He still died on the cross. He still rose again. He also wrote other things in the Bible that we need to teach on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, mark and guide my words. <clears throat> guide my thoughts. Guide my spirit today. I pray that not only do I say the things you would want me to say today, God, but today I would say the things that you want me to say with the spirit that you want me to say them in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> this book right here, I usually have my brown one, but I'm wearing black today. I'm matched. Um, Right, Reed, got my black shoes on, you know, the whole deal. This book right here is the final authority for our faith and our practice. I want everybody to understand this. This book is our guide marker. This book is what we look to to determine how we should live life, to determine what we should do and what we should not do. This book is how we learn oftentimes about history and things that have taken place in the past and what, what we should do in the future, right? We learn much from this book, but today, in order for this to make sense, in order for, for this sermon today to resonate the way that God would have it resonate, we must understand and agree that God's word is the final authority. It's not my word. It's not my opinion. It's not what I want it to say. It's what it says. Take it or leave it. We must understand that this morning. If I can ask you ever so kindly for this morning's sake that we understand that and that becomes the lens by which we view what is going on. I want us to first see this morning the context of the question. The context of the question. By the way, in order to understand everything in the Bible, there is this word called context. And if we simply rip a verse out of the Bible, we will, we will turn into a cult, okay? Um, the context of the question, we must go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 to find the context of this question. Why did these people, why did the Pharisees even ask this question to Jesus? He mentions Moses, Jesus does in his answer. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and let's look at what Moses said. It's always a good thing. The first four verses of Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, so far, Moses has not given permission. Let's, I'm gonna go back and reread it. Moses has not given permission for any of this. He is stating what is going on. Okay? Be very clear. Let me reread it. When a man, this is what's going on. A man is taking his wife, he's marrying her, and then he's finding no favor in his eyes because she's got some uncleanness in her. And he, he then will write her a certificate of a divorce. He will put it in her hand and he will send her out of his house. Those are just statements that Moses is making about what is going on in the culture. Jesus alludes to it in our text today. Verse two, when she has departed from his house and 
goes uh, and becomes another man's wife if the latter husband detests her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. The second husband does this and he puts her in hand and he sends her out of his house. If the latter husband dies who took her, the second husband dies who took her at his wife. This is, now this is the decree. Tone switches. Then her former husband who divorced her, her first husband who divorced her, now Moses gives a command. He must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin in the land, uh, sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Notice that Moses is not suggesting, nor is Moses condoning divorce here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. He is acknowledging its existence and placing parameters around the act of remarrying the same woman that you had divorced previously and had remarried another person. Is that too much to take in there? Everybody got that? Everybody see the context of that, of what's going on? This text was taken by the religious leaders and rabbis of the day and used to formulate, however, a process of handling divorce within the nation of Israel. And there were two schools of thought that formed from this teaching. There were two main rabbis who developed a thought process to what Moses was speaking about when he says that the, the man would, uh, would uh, he found some uncleanness in her. She found no favor in his eyes. He found some uncleanness in her. There were two schools of thought as to what that meant. Rabbi Shammai, and I'm not going to act like I met these dudes, okay? Uh, but this is, his, history says that Rabbi Shammai, um, he taught that, that the uncleanness was strictly sexual immorality. If he found there to be sexual immorality, adultery that had taken place in that marriage, that is when he would put her away or would be, I have grounds to put her away. There was another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and he said that he, so Rabbi Shammai would be on the conservative end of interpreting this and, and playing this out. Rabbi Hillel would be on the liberal end, and he said that the grounds were any indecency. The husband were to see something in his, life, in his wife that he didn't like. He's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Send, get her out of here. Send her away. And as we know in that culture, there was oftentimes such domineering men in there that literally that's the way it would work. The Pharisees, without question, had taken Rabbi Hillel's teaching and had made it their own. Their point here was to make Jesus say something that would cause a stir to push Jesus into a corner to make him answer a, a difficult question and then see the reaction of the people. See, these Pharisees had now transitioned from like the easygoing banter with Jesus, and they were now beginning to focus, and we're going to see it from here to the rest of the end of Mark. They begin to focus a little more severely towards him. They begin to focus a little more intentionally towards him with, uh, with hate and, and, and really wanting to see him fall. And this was a possible reason why here. That is because Herod Antipas back in Mark 6, and we briefly touched on this. John the Baptist was beheaded back in Mark 6. Herodias uh, hated John the Baptist because of his preaching against Herod Antipas and Herodias's adulterous relationship. They had an adulterous relationship together. John the Baptist preached against it, spoke against it, and Herodias had his head delivered on a platter just so happens that where these men were now, where Jesus was physically speaking now, is in the same region. 
in the same area, many of the same people would be around. And so could it be that the Pharisees were trying to back him into a corner so that if Jesus uh, answered uh, in the conservative manner, that he too would be beheaded or he too would have his life taken from him? We don't know that. However, that's a possibility as to the context of this question. Why would they ask this random question in the middle of the book of Mark? So like always, the Pharisees' motive in asking the question is not pure. We do know that. Their question was not pure. The question, at the very least, in verse 2 of our text, says it was testing him. And at worst, it was trying to get him cornered to where the people would revolt against him. But we need to know the context of the question in order to discover, number two, the context of the answer. The context of the answer. And let's go back to our text in Mark chapter 10. Verse 5, Jesus answered, and he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Remember, he's, Moses didn't give you permission. This was out of response to the way you were living, he says. But from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the house of his disciples also asked him again about the same, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus, fully knowing the intent of the Pharisees, answers their question by going all the way back to Genesis chapter number two. You're not going to get me under the law, Jesus says. You're not going to try to... Fence me in with the law. He goes back before then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And may I take a step away from my notes to say this. Biblical marriage is one man, one woman for life. Need I, I don't think I need to, to tread any further down that road. But may I make that statement boldly and unashamedly this morning that biblical marriage is one man, one woman for life. Now we're sinners and we have fleshly appetites and fleshly desires. But God's original intent and God's original design and the covenant of marriage is one plus one equals four. One person, one woman, one man for life. Jesus mentions that Moses' teaching was in response to the hardness of the hearts of the Jewish people. He was not setting a standard by any means. Moses was not setting a standard by the, uh, uh, explaining the way things ought to be. He was simply giving parameters in reaction to the reality that was taking, a pla that was taking place around him. And we must understand this when we consume scripture, when we read scripture, when we try to interpret and apply scripture to our lives. Think about it this way. 
Just because something is permissible does not mean it is prescribed. Think about the statement. Moses is understanding what is, rea- what is happening. It's not like God is striking these people dead. But he's not prescribing it. Does everybody understand the difference there? He is explaining it, and this is a reality, but he is not prescribing it. The context of the answer this morning. The context of the answer. We must understand that Jesus was replying to the Pharisees, but he was not only replying to the Pharisees, he was helping his disciples to understand. He even clarified with his disciples later. By the way, I believe that the prescription for divorce is repentance and reconciliation. I believe that's God's original design. And you say, Josh, why do you get to that conclusion? Well, I get to that conclusion because if God's original plan is one man, one woman for life, then the only way we get back to that is to reconcile and repent and get back to one man, one woman for life. You say, Josh, it's not possible in my situation, and I understand that. I'm giving grace to that, and hold on because we're not done. But I believe that repentance and reconciliation is God's plan when divorce has been permitted, when divorce has happened, when divorce has taken place. Can I say this? I think you'd be okay with this. I'm not going to name names. You, do, you will not know who this is. There's a pastor friend of mine. If I, well, you would, if I said his name, you'd probably know him, some of you. But I'm not going to say his name. There's a pastor this morning who is standing up in front of his church, and he is preaching. And his wife is sitting here, or she's serving in kids probably. And they got married, and for the first two to three years of their marriage, they were, it, was, it was hell on earth. And they got divorced. Final divorce, all the way through. And God brought them back together. And this morning, he leads an incredible church. And she's right beside him, serving and leading and caring for pastor's wives. So it can be done. Can be done. And he's a jerk, man. He's a pastor, but he's a jerk. He's one of my friends, I can say that. Thirdly, and this is very important. So we've seen the context, okay? We saw the context of the question We've seen the context of the answer. Now, thirdly, we need, we need clarity from comparing Scripture. Now, we have used the book of Genesis. We have used the book of Deuteronomy. We have used the book of Malachi. Okay? But there's more Scripture. And the danger, once again, in a topic like divorce, is that we don't use the full context. And what is the best commentary on Scripture, church? The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Okay? The best way to understand more clearly what scripture is saying is by finding more scripture that speaks to it and letting it clarify. And by the way, it is dealt with throughout the Old Testament and is dealt with in the New Testament. Genesis 2 has given us God's original design for marriage. One man, one woman for life. The Bible is clear. But turn, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 7. You see, Paul also deals with this. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. 
A wife is not to depart from her husband. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. We know that's Paul speaking. He said, <laughs> I love Paul, man. Paul's very bold, but like, and this is such a touchy subject. Look at the way Paul says this. Is it on the screen still? All right. Now to the married I command, and Paul's like, yeah, not I, but the Lord. All right, Paul's like, this is what God says, not me. Like, don't be smacking me and coming at me. Even Paul did that. So give pastors a break every now and then. When we're like, don't get mad at me, God said it. But we do know, and if we study scripture, that there are exception clauses or biblical grounds, we call them, for divorce that are found in scripture. Uh, I'm going to give you two of them. Matthew chapter 19 is a parallel of our, of our text in Mark chapter 10. But Matthew 19, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So the first exception to a biblical divorce would be sexual immorality. I will not take you down the path of that original word pornea, which is where we come up with any form of sexual promiscuity, okay? It's what we speak of today. Um, I hold to an adultery stance on that, but that's, if you disagree with me there, that is completely cool. We can, we can still be friends. Um, First exception is sexual immorality. The first uh, biblical ground, exception clause for Jesus' hard stance that he took, right? And for uh, the hard stance that's been taken throughout the Old Testament. The second exception uh, comes from Paul and the continuation of the text earlier. And I love this. This is the cool thing about the inspiration of Scripture. Paul throws the first one on Jesus. The second one, he's like, hey, the Holy Spirit's inspired me to write this in verse 12. But to the rest, I am not the Lord, says. He's like, he's like, it's like he's gotten his, his boldness back. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Okay? So someone has married someone that is not a Christian, not a believer. If the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage, do not divorce Period. Verse 13, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Same thing. You marry a man, you marry a woman, they're unsaved, they do not believe in Jesus, but they want to stay in the marriage, you stay in the marriage. Okay? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the believing wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. I won't dig into that. I don't believe in household salvation here, um, but he is, he is alluding to the, 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 the fact that the saved person could influence uh, the unsaved person, especially when you're looking at children as well. But look at verse 15. That's where I really wanted to get. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. Okay? So you marry a person, they are not a believer in Jesus. They abandon the marriage. 
Let him go if you want. That's, what Jesus, that's the exception. That's the biblical ground. If you marry someone, they are not a believer in Jesus and they abandon the marriage. You allow them if you so choose. But look at that last phrase. Let's not, let's not mistake. Let's not mistakenly look over it. But God has called us to peace. God has called us to peace. That's a good verse, a good phrase, maybe for someone who is in the midst of this. So the second ex- exception is an unbelieving spouse who abandons the marriage. Sexual immorality and an unbelieving spouse who walks out. Those are the exceptions in Scripture. As uncomfortable as that may be to hear today, these are the only two exceptions given clearly in Scripture. And may I say this, and I want you to listen. There are definitely some what about questions that come to mind. And I could begin listing them this morning, and I'm not going to. There are for sure some, well, what about if this, and what about this? I can help you even ask those questions today. What I brought to you today is what the Bible says about it. There are some who go down the rabbit hole of inspecting the details of the covenants. And and I would do that to a certain uh, degree. And there may be some merit to those discussions. But those are a very, very, very tiny, tiny percentage of divorce scenarios that may not be black and white in Scripture. In fact, from the research that I found from a reputable research place, 43% of divorces are for incompatibility. 24% of them are sexual immorality, and another 23% of them are finances. We're getting close to 90 there. And so, and let's just give 10% to these crazy things that we could discuss on a personal level. But this morning, let's deal with the 90%. It is very clear in Scripture that God is against divorce. He hates it. And the only exception clauses listed clearly in Scripture are sexual immorality and an unsaved and unbelieving spouse who abandons the marriage, period. You say, Josh, that doesn't jive with our culture. It doesn't. I get it. I understand that. I'm not here today to appease our culture. If you're watching online, considering our church... We are not here today to appease our culture. We're here today to preach God's word. But fourthly, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? That's a tough question. First of all, what if I am considering divorce? 1 Corinthians 7, 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, Paul, says a wife is not to depart from her husband. Even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Simply put from the lips of Scripture, don't. Don't. Get help. Repent. And restore the relationship. Make principled decisions and not emotional decisions. What if I'm considering it? May I give you a quote to consider? In Genesis chapter 2, it talks about 
Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and rejoin us, and they too become one. May I make this statement? One is an indivisible number. One is an indivisible number. When two become one in sickness and health and poverty, thank the Lord, Sarah's in poverty, and in wealth, maybe one day, I want to see if she can make it through the wealth stage when I get rich. No, we make those statements. We become one. We literally bring our lives together, both in a practical standpoint, in a sexual standpoint, in a spiritual standpoint. One is an indivisible number. Second question, what if I'm already divorced? Please, I know for a fact there are people in this room, I love you, so please listen to this. I'm not even... I am not even today making a distinction between if your divorce was a biblical divorce or if your divorce was ugly, nasty, hateful, and unbiblical. I'm not even, I'm not, it doesn't matter to me, okay? What if I'm divorced? Here's where we must take a full biblical approach to sin. So if, if you feel like your divorce was wrong because of what scripture has taught us today, sin is wrong. And you're standing here and sitting here in an auditorium full of sinners. And the guy standing up here is, a, is, is one of them. Sin is wrong. It's the defilement of our souls, our spirits, and our bodies. And may I say unequivocally that God hates sin. God hates divorce. God hates pride. God hates lying. God hates gluttony. God hates drunkenness. God hates sin. But we're all born into the sin-cursed world. And God had a plan to pay for sin. So what if I'm already divorced? The good news is the gospel covers you. The gospel has always covered you. And the gospel will always cover you. Romans 5, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, let's just say it was an ugly, bad, sinful divorce, where divorce abounded, grace abounded much more, where pride abounded, where dishonesty abounded, where abuse abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's grace. Context, I gotta be honest. The very next chapter, Romans 6. But Paul, what if we just, now we have grace, we can do whatever. I mean, I know it's sin, but there's grace for that. Should we continue in sin that just grace can keep on abounding? What does Paul say? God forbid got to be keep it in context but what if i'm already divorced you're accepted you are loved not on your good deeds not on your good works not on your merit this morning but you are loved and accepted because of the merit of jesus christ and his love for you 
There's always grace for that. Grace is a beautiful thing this morning. May I be honest with you today and say that certain sins carry with it unique and often more severe consequences. And divorce seems to be one of those, depending on your life circumstances, that could be severe consequences. But you know, God also mentions that disobedience to parents is an abomination to him. Did you know that? I got two little abominators running around (laughs) this property somewhere. I can promise you that. (laughs) So may I make this statement this morning? If there is grace for the disobedient adolescent, then there is grace for the divorced adult. Listen to me this morning. Hear me out. If there is grace for the abomination of a disobedient adolescent, then there is grace for the divorced adult. You are loved and valued. You are a child of the king and have every spiritual blessing in Christ. In conclusion this morning, and I know I went a little bit long today and I apologize, But I felt like as we preach through Scripture, I can promise you that I have no idea when I'll be preaching through Deuteronomy. I can promise you that. Um, 1 Corinthians, that's a tough one too. Probably push that one a little bit down the way. Don't know when we would get to this topic. And as we did with with, uh, abuse of children, when we do come to these texts, I want to do it justice. One of the reasons why divorce is such a touchy subject is because of this. It's because of the nature of what is broken. What is that? It's not just a marriage that's broken. It's not just children or, or, or the perfect life, the American dream. It's not that. It's a covenant that's broken. And this covenant is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus and his bride. Men are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved church and when that symbol is broken by either party the husband or the wife it symbolizes the deconstruction of one's relationship with God through Christ Jesus let me say this just because you've been through that does not mean that you have deconstructed your relationship what I'm saying is the symbolism there the symbolism why is it so important I love the theology of John chapter 10. Those in a covenant marriage with God in Christ Jesus can never be divorced out of his family. You are fully engrafted in, never to be divorced. You are adopted into his family, never to be an orphan. You are his bride, and you will forever be his bride. But we are sinful people. We are sinful people. The beauty of the gospel today says, men will fail you. Women will fail you. The beauty of the gospel today says husbands will fail you and wives will fail you. The beauty of the gospel says that Jesus never fails. Never. And when we think that he is, he's not. And when we think that he's nowhere to be found, he's there. He may not be as vocal as you'd want him to be in your heart, 
he may not be making that other person's life as much hell as you wish it was. But he's there. He's there. Jesus never fails. Whether there be prophecies, they're going to fail. Whether there be human beings with flesh and blood and skin and temptations, they will fail. Whether there be well-meaning wives or well-meaning husbands who sidetrack their thoughts and hearts, they will fail. But Jesus never fails. When we enter the covenant marriage as the bride of Christ, Jesus takes us and we are in his hand, John 10 tells us. And it's not just that, but God comes and we are in his hand. And no man can pluck us out. The conclusion today is we live in a sin-cursed world where we deal with divorce and we deal with abandonment. But there will be a day, and we have entered in, if you're a child of God today, you've entered in to a marriage as the bride of Christ that can never be destructed. It can never be broken. And we fail 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 and we try to fix it and we fail and we try to fix it and we sin against God and we try to fix it and we sin against God and we try to get better. That's our lives. We sin against God and we try to get better and we sin against God we try to get better and he brings us back and he accepts us and he loves us every single time. If you ever decide to pastor, good luck on texts like this, man. It's not easy. I hate it. I want to come up here every day and I want to preach on feeding 5,000 people with food, man. I think the title of that sermon was All You Can Eat Seafood Buffet. I'm down for that one. I want to preach about, I want to, I want to debate whether Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights or two nights and three days and was it on a Thursday or was it on a Friday? That's what I want to preach about, the resurrection. <clears throat> but the truth is the Bible deals with this we have to deal with it but we deal with it in context of the gospel and I'm done everyone else can fail everyone else can fail but Jesus he will never fail thanks for listening today if you're listening for the first time we would love to hear from you Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media and outreach ministries at Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and around the world.